Welcome to the Paramedia Podcast. Hi, everyone, and uh, welcome to the Paramedia Podcast. Um, today, we are joined again by one of the guests we had earlier um, this or last year, um, Rami Shivan, um, who is an Acharya in Australia and um, is belongs to Shiva Shiva Sampradaya. Uh, last time we we had a great conversation covering a whole host of different topics, including, you know, Varnashrama, some little Buddhism, some aspects of uh, Dharma Shastras. It was wide ranging. And this one, I think we want to maybe narrow it down a little bit and just have a, a shorter, more focused conversation. So, um, uh, Acharya, welcome to the podcast again. How are you? Thank you very much. I am fine. Living the life, the dream down here in Australia. Yeah, it's uh, it's what now summer for you guys, right? Yes, it is. But it's been a very wet summer. Yeah, it's just we've got flooding at the moment. Oh man, that's that's uh, that's something that you know I'm in LA and we wish we had more rain here because we're in a drought. Um, oh dear! You see, the yeah. the problem that we have is that it's marriage season right now, and so uh, there there is a fantasy with. Uh, with brides for having an outside wedding it's see i don't know what it's like in america but all hindu brides now want outside weddings and uh this is dampening a lot of their their, their plans their fantasies like yeah i mean so i i mean i mentioned like i'm getting married in like three weeks um it's my second marriage um but this one's gonna last <laughs> but uh <laughs> Uh, so this one, we're getting married in, in Cancun um, in, in an outside wedding. Um, but uh, I think um, I think that the thing is, it's like nowadays, especially it's it's very pretty. I think people love the prettiness of doing an outside wedding with like by the beach with the water. And it feels like you're kind of commuting with nature again. Um, maybe that could be one of the reasons. Yeah, but it doesn't quite work with uh, with Hindu weddings for because first of all, you cannot have a wedding in the open sky. You have yeah. to have a covering. Yes, and so the mandap has to be covered. And then you've got the problem of summer heat, flies, guests standing outside. It's uh, well. I mean, uh, in India, a lot of times, don't they do? I mean, I know they do some more in the north. They do weddings outside with like the mandap covered and everything like that. I've seen. Uh, well, it, it all depends on the, the climate. I mean, in yeah. the middle of winter, to have an outside wedding is very romantic, but then you've got flies. Uh, you don't have flies, but you've got wind, you've got rain. Yeah. Um, you've got all that inclement stuff that you have to take uh, into account. Right. Um, so it's, it's, and you can't light lamps, you can't light a fire, you can't, uh, you know, it's, it becomes logistically very difficult. Yeah, outside. yeah. But they, I mean, they are pretty, whatever it's, you know, brides. Weddings are about brides and their mothers. <laughs> That's what I hear, but I think mine's about me and my, I want to get my family and everyone together after COVID. So it's, uh, you know, it's a little, a little bit of both here. Um, so how many weddings are you doing this season? Uh, say again. How many weddings are you doing this season? Oh, this year I've done about 15 since wow. COVID ended. And uh, I've got about 30 weddings for the rest of the year booked up and I'm getting inquiries every day. Wow, that's, that's intense. That's a lot. That's one a week almost. 
uh, almost one or, two, or even two a week sometimes. And this is in addition to all your other work you do, your full-time right. job, your your other Acharya duties, your, you know, Purohit duties. <laughs> and the thing is that weddings also include uh, pre-wedding interviews. And then we do, a, I do a rehearsal with all my couples. Okay. So I rehearse the entire wedding, which can take an hour and a half. Yeah. And uh, then it's the performing of the wedding and then it's pack up or the, the, it's, it's logistically quite uh, complex. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so I, I, I guess like the, I kind of want to discuss one or one or two, uh, one of two things today. Um, ideally, like whether we can talk about the samskaras or we can talk about the uh, pancharata, you know, like which do you feel more comfortable uh, talking about today? Well, probably uh, for samskaras, I need to give you a little bit more uh, technical information, which I don't really have at my fingertips, but I can give you a broad introduction to pancharatra. Yeah. That's fantastic. Um, that. So um, the Pancharatra falls under the Agamo Tantra category of spirituality. And uh, there is argument which came first. Was it the Vedika or the Agama? Um, but these arguments are academic. Mm -hmm. The uh, fact remains that the Vedika system was limited to the Dvijas, twice born. Yeah. And even then, the ritual, the samskaras, everything that was involved in the Vedas was, were um, specifically targeted towards the Dvijas, and they were very expensive. So mm -hmm. all the Vedic Yagyas, for example, they uh, flourished under royal patronage because they required large teams of expert uh, practitioners, um, months of preparation, the ceremonies used to go on for days on sure. end, up, you know, even over years. So they were out of the reach of the common people. And the vast majority of the people were not Vijas, <clears throat> were they not twice born. And there was nothing for them. You know, what do, what do you, uh, what kind of spirituality do you offer the common people? So this is where the Agama steps in. And so the Agama gives, um, uh, sort of mimics Vedic ceremonies, but for the common folk. Okay. So, for example, the temple became the um, co-relative of the uh, Vedic Yagashala. So instead of having a Yagashala, you have a Mandir or Alaya. Uh, instead of having the uh, uh, central um, um, uh, Vedika or the <laughs> altar, they would have the murti. So everything was transposed from the Yagashala into the structure of the uh, Agamic uh, temple. And then instead of the Vedic ceremonies, you would have utsavas, festivals. So the main utsava of an Agamic temple is the Brahma utsava, which is 10 days long, which was um, analogous to the Vedic ceremony, the basic Vedic ceremony of uh, 10 days. It was actually nine days plus one, but uh, we can get into that uh, later. And so the, the Agamas presented exactly the same type of spirituality and knowledge and uh, practice of the Vedas, but uh, uh, attuned to the common folk. 
everybody had access to uh, Pancharatra in, in mm. spite of um, a lot of resistance, because the problem is that the Brahmins kind of take over stuff and they Brahminicize it. Okay. And I think this, this was one of the problems with the Pancharatra, because for example, in Pancharatra, in the Ishwara Samhita, it says that a Shudra can be an Acharya. Okay. Now, if you ask any um, average uh, Agama Pandit, they would say, no, only Brahmins can be Acharyas. Right. But in actual fact, I, uh, I, have, I had a friend of mine actually wrote a whole blog based on the information that I gave him. And um, he established that uh, Shudras can become Acharyas in an Agama temple for the purpose of pratishta. pratishta. Plus that, they can be archakas in the temple. And um, uh, so he, he wrote this blog and he actually got a lot of positive feedback from scholars, which said, yes, in actual fact, this is true. But common people were not too happy. You know, the, the average Sri Vaishnava hmm. um, was not happy with this. They, they did, they kind of, they were not happy, but, but they couldn't dispute it because it's actually in the texts. Right, right. So in this way, Agama is open for everyone. So they, all the samskaras, for example, the Vedic samskaras, which we can talk about in the next podcast, yeah. they are given in the Agama as well. But the difference is that they, they do not use Vedic mantras. And well, this uh, is, when, you, when you say they don't use Vedic mantras, are you meaning they don't use the mantras from the Vedas or they chant them differently? No, they don't use mantras from the Vedas at all. Okay. They, uh, so, for example, you've got uh, the classical purification ceremony in the Veda is known as the Punyavachana. Yeah. And it utilizes Vedic mantras. So in the Pancharatra Agama, you've got a Vasudeva Punyavachana, which is just slokas. Okay. And there are no mantras. Uh, well, technically speaking, a mantra only comes from the Veda. Right. What you find, all the other kind of verses that we recite are not technically speaking mantras, they are shlokas. So the Vasudeva Punyavachana includes, is all shlokas. Yeah. There is not a single Vedic mantra in those. Um, then all the, um, the, the ceremonies are done exactly the same as in the Vedas, but as I say, without any um, uh, text from the Vedas. The reason is, it, being is that, that because of the, of the rule that non-Dwijas can't chant the Vedas, so therefore correct, Agama correct. kept that tradition, but just changed it or supplemented with their, with their own? Well, the, the, the problem with recite, like for example, when you do a traditional uh, Sri Vaishnava marriage, you'll find that the, the, um, the Vadya will ask you to repeat in Sanskrit Vedic mantras. Now, you, it is presumed that you've had pre-training. Mm. Um, because again, Technically speaking, there are no uh, domestic priests in the Vedic system because uh, the priests as a class only came after the decline of the Vedic system. And the reason being that you would go to the Gurukul and you would learn all the mantras and all the ceremonies and all the samskaras for yourself. Yes. So, for example, in the uh, Grihya Sutras, where it prescribes the marriage ceremony, it doesn't mention a priest. It says, you invite your wife to sit down. You take her hand. You say this while you're taking her hand. 
So there is no um, indication that there is a third party who is intervening or is actually managing the ceremony. You yourself are conducting everything for yourself. Now, with the decline of Vedic studies and Vedic tuition, uh, people there was this lacuna now. People didn't know how to do their own ceremonies because they hadn't undergone the training. So, in we uh, so a professional class of priests evolve. That would that, that's why they call in Tamil we call them vadya. Vadya means a teacher. Yeah. So he is there. Only the rajas had purohits. Mm. So a domestic priest was appointed to a raja. But generally, people didn't have purohits. They had vadyas. Okay. Teach you how to. So he basically, what he's doing is he's teaching you how to do the ceremony while the ceremony is going on. I see. Now, uh, for a non-dvija or a non-Brahmin, they didn't have that basic training in Veda. So they couldn't uh, pronounce the mantras, they couldn't pronounce the swaras, and so they were exempt from using Vedic mantras in their ceremonies, but they could do the same ceremonies using easy Sanskrit shlokas, which the priest would then recite on their behalf. So they would not... And this is in the, in, the, in the Vedic system. Correct. Okay. Now, in Pancharatra, because the mantras uh, are, uh, are tantric mantras, they're simplified mantras, and mm -hmm. they come from the Agama, anybody can use them, anybody can recite them. Now, some people have, uh, <clears throat> people that are into uh, equality, diversity, they get kind of uh, upset. Why different systems? Well, it's, I always say, well, is it easier to learn uh, something from a comic book or a PhD thesis? Right. You're learning the same information, but you're learning it in an easier format that's, um, that's accessible. Yeah. I think people sometimes will be like, oh, that's patronizing, that's this, that's yes, all that. Yeah. But I mean, I think there's a realism that comes with, with, with this somewhat bifurcation of the Vedic knowledge into the Vedas and the Puranas and the Agamas is I feel like it's the, the realistic expectation that people don't have the time, dedication, money, or the, the ability to spend 25 years of your life learning you know, the Vedic texts to learn properly. <clears throat> Well, exactly. I mean, a lot of the people, say, for example, now during my marriage season, the vast majority of the marriages that I'm doing are mixed marriages. Yeah. So one party is either um, of a different uh, caste or the other parties of a different ethnic group or religion. Yeah. And sometimes they're having double dual marriages. So they'll have a Christian wedding and a Hindu wedding. Um, so there's a lot of mixing and matching. So in the hour that I have to perform the ceremony, I need to give them something that is meaningful and uh, something that is pertinent and applicable to that time frame. So although we recite all the mantras in Sanskrit, we get the couples to recite their vows in English. Okay. Sorry about that. No problem. Um, so we get them to recite their vows in English and uh, we give explanations throughout. Mm -hmm. uh, so the couple and I, I go through about an hour and a half beforehand in the initial interview, explaining every stage of the marriage, every step of the marriage, what it means, what's the significance, 
what are the expectations, etc. So I get the couple to own the ceremony. And this right. is what I want. I want them to own the ceremony and not do the ceremony simply pro forma for the sake of their parents. Right. Um, so they, and then all the couples actually do own the ceremony because they realize that the, the Vedic marriage ceremony is culturally neutral, but it's packaged in a Indian cultural package, but right. the vows are universal. That's right. And That's right. so... Um, the same stuff is given to people, but in an easier format. Now, and, like weddings themselves are generally Vedic, right? They're not agamic, correct? If, or there is a, 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 correct, but there is there are actually for everything in the. Um, I suppose you need to go back uh, a little bit of history here. Sure. A lot of people, a lot of commentators think of the, when you ask them, uh, what is your understanding of the caste system? They'll say, oh, Brahmins, Kshatriyas, Vaishyas, Sudhas, Brahmins were the priests, Kshatriyas were the warriors, Vaishyas were the uh, uh, farmers, and the Sudhas were the uh, peasants, the serfs, the laborers. Mm -hmm. uh, this was the model when it was an agricultural-based civilization two and a half, three thousand, even more, three, four thousand years ago. But um, from the time of the Guptas onwards, from about the third century, the society became a lot, even prior, around about 500, the time of the Buddha, you all already had sophisticated cities and uh, international trade. Sure. Remember that Rome and uh, Greece were trading with South India. Right, right. And so with the international trade came um, artisans that produced quality fine goods for export. So there's uh, weaving, jewelry, pottery, carpentry, um, metalwork. Sure. All of this was controlled by the Shudras. Now, the, the Vaishyas moved from farming into banking and they moved because uh, if you remember the the vaishyas the jagat sets actually financed the moguls and the british that's right yeah and so they went into uh, mercantile you know trading entrepreneurial stuff the farming was taken over by the shudras so the the cattle rearing, the the farming that was originally the Vaishya occupation became the occupation of the Shudras. So right. the Shudras became land owners. They became the primary food producers. And the five um, Kamalar, uh, in South India, we call them as the five Kamalar castes. And in North India, they were the Vishwakarma castes. Yeah. Were the highly skilled um, metal workers, uh, um, uh, carpenters, goldsmiths, silversmiths, all of these people. Now, with the rise of the temple architecture, the temple culture in about the third century, everything involved with the temple was in the hands of the Shudras. So it's the architects, the, the planners, the builders, the sculptors, the stonemasons, the metal workers, the farmers that produced the, the stuff, the entire economy of the temple was Shudra based. Mm. And the Shudras became very powerful in South India, particularly the Velala uh, Shudra caste became extremely powerful in terms of 
their socioeconomic uh, punch. And they managed the temples. So the temple management was uh, Shudra, everything. The only, pe the only involvement of the Brahmins was actually becoming the Archikas. <laughs> and they were employed by yeah. the Sudras to uh, serve in the temple. So this model, this original model of uh, four castes, um, you know, farmers, uh, yeah. laborers is, you know, that is, it was defunct two, 2000 years ago. Now, what happened is that as the Shudras became more economically powerful and there was the decline in the Vedic culture and the sponsorship of the Brahmins. So they had to shift their business model because they could no, they no longer had royal patronage. And particularly sure. with the uh, Mughal Empire, the Rajas were insignificant. And so they realized that this, their economic base was the Shudra community. So what they started doing, and I think the movement, you know, I mean, roughly I could be corrected on this. It started around uh, Maharashtra. There were uh, some very learned scholars that decided that they had to start uh, including the Shudras in the whole um, cultural format. Sure. So they started writing books like uh, um, Kamalakara Bhatta was uh, one of the main um, uh, movers and shakers in this. So they uh, wrote books on Shudra, Dharma, uh, Prakasha, and they, uh, they started uh, developing samskaras for the Shudras based on using Puranika and Tantric mantras. I see. So they, um, and then also like in North India, for example, uh, they use the Vedic. So there's, there's uh, two formats. There's uh, Vedokta and there's Puranokta. Okay. So Puranokta is, is based on the Puranas. And again, all the samskaras, everything appear, reappear in the Puranas with Puranic shlokas. Right. Which is easy Sanskrit. So as anybody that has a basic knowledge of Sanskrit can read this and understand it. Whereas Vedic mantras are impossible to understand unless you know archaic Vedic Sanskrit. Right. And uh, so the Agamas as well started catering to the the Shudra communica, uh, community. And um, so we had all this original some Vedic samskaras now <clears throat> in easy to use user-friendly format, <clears throat> sorry. And um, so you had the pure Punyavachanam, which was now became the Vasudeva Punyavachanam, which was um, applicable to everyone. Uh, women were, were given, previously women were excluded from samskaras as well. Uh, so now they were included, they could have all the samskaras done for them. And uh, so the whole, uh, the whole culture shifted position from being Veda-based to Agama-based. So what is practiced as Hinduism today is 90% yeah. uh, Tantra slash Agama and only about 10% Veda. Interesting. Uh, I mean, like, so like texts like Ishwar Samhita or even uh, here Buddha Samhita, these are pretty ancient, right? They're, they're like 2000 years or something of that nature, correct? Um, some of them are, uh, well, there is an argument that some of them are pre-Buddhist <clears throat> yeah. because they don't, the Agamas, the older Agamas, and remember that there, there are hundreds of Agama texts, yeah. 
The older Agamas do not enumerate Buddha as an incarnation of Vishnu. Right, right. But some of the later Agamas that were written in the, you know, like sort of first, second, third century, they do include Buddha as an avatar. So I, I guess my question is those, those early uh, Agamas in the, in the Panchara there, were they already including Shudras as Acharyas in the text, or was that a later development coinciding with what you're talking about? Well, the whole the whole tantric movement was uh, an inclusive movement, mm -hmm. and uh, what the theory is that is that the tantra and the Veda uh, operated parallel. I see. So um, at the time that the that the Brahmins had their Vedas, the common people were practicing tantra. <clears throat> but, so, but at the uh, same at the same time, I mean, isn't it? The ones that wrote the tantras are also the brahmanas, correct? Like the yeah. <clears throat> um, well, the, we come now to the problem of actually authorship, because yeah. although the brahmans were considered to be the authors of all these texts, we don't really know for sure. Sure. Um, it could have been uh, some learned uh, scholars of the Vaishya community or the Kshatriyas. In actual fact, the Upanishads, for example, most of the teachers are Kshatriyas. Right. And the Brahmins go to the Kshatriyas to learn from them. <laughs> That's right. this, this actually illustrates a very important uh, aspect that according to the, uh, the, Brahma, uh, the uh, Buddhist and the Jain texts, the hierarchy was Kshatriyas at the top. Right. Uh, followed by the Brahmins, Vaishyas, and Shudras. Right. In the work written by the Brahmins, they put themselves on the top. Right, right. All right, so uh, we have this discrepancy. But then in the Upanishads, you see that the Kshatriyas are in actual fact the top dogs to use. Right, right. It, it was like the, the Roger, she's like Janaka or someone like that, right? Yeah. That, would, that they would come to advice for. Um, and so on this point, I, 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 I would ask, so... The Pancharatha tradition, in some sense, you know, the first I remember reading about it was in the Mahabharata and the Narayaniya section of the Shantiparva, yes. right? So Correct. now is is that the first incidence of us hearing about it? Or is there some is there because I also heard this other position that we can find the Pancharatha tradition connected to the Taitreya Samhita in the Yajurveda. But I'm not I'm not sure of these connections. I have not looked into that, but do you have any thoughts on that? Um, again, a lot of these connections are tendentious. That you, it's very hard to prove them because um, Indian literature is so uh, complex. Yeah, and um, there are many different authors, and uh, literature has been interpolated and extrapolated, and so it's very hard to actually um, tie it down into uh, sequential developments. But sure. we do have. Um, we have, for example, there's a Garuda column that was erected by a Greek convert to Vaishnavism. That's correct. And so we do have some inscriptions of Greeks becoming um, uh, Vaishnavas. And there's mention of a uh, Greek Vaishnava community around Mathura. And so we do have, and then in these inscriptions, you have snippets of Pancharatric theology of Vasudeva, of Sankarshana, Pradyumna, these kind of things coming through. But you don't, 
have any like sort of structured uh, Pancharatrika theology, which came later with the development of the texts sure. um, over the centuries. And uh, I guess the texts, uh, just by speculating, came um, into prominence with the temple culture, which is said to start around the third century. Right. So with the building of the temples, you needed uh, manuals on how to build the temples, what the, the criteria of the building of the temples were, the inauguration, the consecration, the, all that kind of stuff. So you needed texts to actually give you the guidance. So that's when the Agamas started uh, being produced. Sure. And so all the Agamas um, give you different aspects of temple culture. It's, uh, you know, what are the implements used? What are the ceremonies to perform? What are the festivals? What, you know, all that kind of stuff. So among that work in, and as far as I know, it's only the Ishwara Samhita that actually gives you the, the fact, uh, gives you the criteria for an, uh, an Acharya being a Shudra. Although right. the other Agamas also do mention uh, Shudras as being fully uh, involved in the temple culture. Right. So, it, so how far, like, if we focus on the Pancharatra tradition itself, how far do we have a sense of when it probably originated and, and what was its first, um, <clears throat> like, what were its first um, expressions in, 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 I guess, in historic time? Do you want the mythological or the both. historical account? You can do both. Well, the mythological account is that it goes back to 5,000 years ago. Yeah. The actual historical account would probably put it in the, uh, you know, around the beginning of the common era. Okay. Um, it's like the Alvars as well. If you read the uh, hagiographic accounts, they're all in, you know, end of Kali, uh, at the beginning of the Kali Yuga. Yeah. Uh, and then if you look at the linguistic, the Tamil linguistic, Sangam, et cetera, et cetera, you put in those factors. You'll see that they're all much, much uh, later. Sure. We're talking about the Sangam Tamil era. <clears throat> so uh, you've got the legendary accounts and the actual um, historical accounts from the archaeology and from the actual texts themselves, which would uh, would put them around the first, second century when it started developing as, <clears throat> as a full system. Yeah. But I mean, we have we have references to the you know the 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 theology of the Pancharatha is like the you know the 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 Chaturvidyas you know, uh, you yeah we also have refutation of Pancharatra there's uh, quite early on there's um, I think it was even Shankaracharya tried to um, he refute um, yes uh, Pancharatra he said that it was non-Vedic um, yeah and there there are quite a few early uh, I mean, I don't remember their names at the moment, early Acharyas that condemned the Pancharatra because of non-Vedic practices like branding, for example. Right. That's um, that was considered Avedika. But then the uh, Vedanta Desika actually wrote a whole treatise supporting that based on uh, Vedic texts. Uh, like the Atapta Tanurna Taddama Ashnute was a, a Vedic dictum which said uh, a body which is not tapta, which hasn't been heated, cannot yeah. uh, reach the uh, highest state. Um, 
it does it actually refer to uh, you know the Tapa Mudra? That's another thing. But, yeah, uh, that's right. Yeah. Tapa Tanur can be a body that uh, a person who has not undergone austerities. Right. Because tapas is austerities, so it right. could also mean a person who has not undergone rigorous austerities cannot achieve enlightenment. Right. And uh, you could also interpret as okay, if you haven't had your tapa mudra, then you won't <laughs> get paramapada. So uh, on the panchartha, what are the what are the main elements of panchartha? Right. Like we know there's the 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 vyuha system. There's uh, the temple. And then there's like mantra, and then there's something else I, that I, it, it escapes me. There isn't there four main elements within the Panchayatha system? Well, well, actually, it, uh, it breaks down to five uh, main elements. And they, you see, the thing is that there are a lot of, um, I don't have the, um, if, if, if you'd give me some preparation. I, I apologize. <laughs> pulled it all up for you so i'm just running on my cognitive declining state and trying to uh, remember stuff but um agama covers all aspects of an individual's life so you have um uh, we got the the four um sections of agama are charya yoga jnana charya yoga and um kriya so jnana, the jnana bhaga covers the knowledge aspect. So right. that is all your, it's, that is akin to in uh, Veda, you, you've got three sections, jnana kanda, karma kanda, and upasana kanda. So jnana kanda is your knowledge. And so again, in uh, Pancharatra, you have the um, jnana pada that gives you the whole philosophy the and everything that's in the Vedas is presented here. But once again, the Jnana Kanda of the Vedas, which is embodied in the Upanishads, was only accessible to Dvijas. Yeah. Whereas the Jnana Kanda of the Pancharatra is the same knowledge now revealed to everyone, regardless of gender, caste, creed, or whatever. Everybody can study the same knowledge through the Pancharatra. Then the Acharya, uh, Pada gave you conduct. How do mm. you conduct your life? You know, what do you do when you wake up in the morning? How do you bathe? How do you um, live your daily life? What are your value systems? And then uh, Kriya, it gives you the ritual practice. What your daily ritual practice in your home, shrine. And then when you, that covers also the temple ritual practice. Then Yoga Pada, covers your, your yoga, your meditation, your intensive internal spiritual practice. Whereas Charyapada, Kriyapada is about external rituals, whereas right. Yogapada is more about your inner spiritual development. So these are the four major sections that are covered in all the tantras. Now, the, uh, when you talk about, you may want to know what is the difference between tantra and agama. Um, Tantra and Agama cover the same topics of spirituality, spiritual practice, but the Agama gives um, greater, there are more subsections in the Agama than there are in the Tantra. But Pancharatra, is that considered both Agama and Tantra? Well, it is. Agama and Tantra are, are used synonymously. Okay. So okay. they uh, exchange. But generally speaking, uh, Vaishnavas, we don't refer to our texts as tantras, although there are some tantras. We refer to them as agamas. And the Shaivites also refer to their texts as agamas. 
the shaktas refer to their texts as tantras. Is there a reason for that uh, difference or? Not really. Uh, tantra, the root uh, meaning of tantra is uh, tantra, that that by which knowledge, tan, it means to spread. So that by which knowledge is spread is the tantra. Yeah. Then agama means that which has come down oh, to us. Yeah. Uh, gam meaning going, so agama, that which is uh, the tradition that has been passed down to us from right. uh, the ancient in, um, antiquity. But uh, so, I mean, it's basically the same stuff. Same stuff, and okay. It's primarily deity, uh, what we call today as deity yoga, which is the using the utilization of imagery Mm -hmm. and forms in order to um, concentrate to meditate rather than using abstract uh, imagery or, right right and that's where we get you know the the the, the murtis and the the, yes. the mandalas and the visualizations that we use um Correct. across right but, but there's also this um this mapping right of of phenomes to to visualizations, correct? Also, is, is that present in uh, Panchartha tradition like it is in, in Kashmir Shaivism? Um, yeah, it's basically all the same techniques, but with slight variations. That's okay. the thing. It's just a, a standard um, kind of giving you structure for your spiritual practice, um, which is all designed along the same rules and regulations. Right. And, and what's the theology of the Pancharatha tradition? Well, there is, uh, some people would argue that it is, um, you know, you've got this debate going on um, uh, about personalism, impersonalism, mm -hmm. uh, whether Pancharatra is actually personalist or does it have elements of Advaita, non-dualism in it? Right. In my readings, both streams of thought come through in... Uh, in Pancharatra. There are uh, statements, again, I can't recall offhand, but sure. uh, in future I can uh, make sure that I have these quotes already for you. <laughs> this is my fault, but yes. <laughs> this is what comes from lack of preparation. Uh, so, for example, there is a statement that says, Nirakara tu devesha na archanam bhavendranam nacha dhyanam nacha stotram tasmat sakaram archayet. So it says nirakara tu devesha na archanam bhavendranam. So it says a, a god that is without form, nirakara, cannot be worshipped. In form. Or cannot be dhyana. You cannot meditate or uh, do anything with a formless deity. Tasmat sakaram archayet. Therefore, it is in your best interests and uh, to facilitate your spiritual progress to worship God through form. So just in this one verse alone, it is not saying that nirakara is a higher or lower form of worship. Right. It's just saying, well, look, yeah, nirakara, although in the Narayana Upanishad, for example, it says that Sriman Narayana is nirvikalpa, nirakara, uh, agochara, cannot be uh, imagined, yeah. uh, is transcendent, absolute. So the Pancharatra echoes that, that yes, you know, the absolute uh, uh, Sriman Narayana is inconceivable and inexpressible. But having said that, what can we do with that? And the ultimate 
test of knowledge in, if you go back to your Mimamsa classes, which I know that you, uh, you underwent, Prama or valid knowledge is defined as knowledge which describes the thing as it is and is practicably useful. Right. And that's the key element. It's practically useful. <laughs> yeah. And this is the key to understanding all of the, the you know, the theory in, uh, in Hinduism is all about pragmatism. Mm -hmm. You know, what do we do with this knowledge? So, yes, God, Sriman Narayana is, is nirakara, is impersonal. Yeah. But what can we do with that? You can't do anything with it. And we need something to link. And the Pancharatra also says that if you do not have a, a link or a something upon which to uh, uh, direct your thoughts, your mind will wander away in meditation. Right. And, uh, and this is another thing that's um, neglected a lot. In Pancharatra, there is a huge emphasis on meditation. And I've had this, uh, uh, this discussion with a number of uh, Acharyas, for example, Velkudi. Um, I said to him once at a public meeting, I said, uh, Pancharatra stresses Bhagavad Dhyana, meditation on God. And even Ramanu just said that Bhagavad Dhyana is Moksha Upaya. Yeah. Um, the later, especially the, uh, the Tengale Sri Vaishnava, completely neglected that and said, oh, there's no Moksha Upaya, and it's just Saranagati. Right. The Vadagala still retained that uh, moksha upaya business, but even then they did not stress on uh, Bhagavad Dhyana. Mm -hmm. And so I asked him, why is this? So he said, oh, everybody knows how to meditate. I said, no, they don't. Meditation <laughs> is a particular technique that has to be taught. Right. Um, and he was evasive. He was not happy with the question. Um, and yeah, so, and a lot of my students have gone back to India and they've gone to Acharyas and they've said, why are you not teaching Bhagavad Dhyana? Yeah. Why is there no, there are no classes in it? There's no instruction. And even Archakas, before they actually um, begin the daily um, puja or Archana in the temple, are supposed to do about 40 minutes of Bhagavad Dhyana. Now, is Bhagavad Dhyana very similar to uh, uh, like Namasmriti or, uh, or med meditation on, um, you know, just rem remembrance in that sense? Or is it a different no, practice than simple remembrance? It's a, it's a whole practice of deity visualization. So, for example, you, you begin with, you do a, a Bhuta Shuddhi, which is a purification of the elements of the body in which you visualize that the body is, uh, it's actually preparation for death because you visualize your body, the, the earth element dissolving, the water element dissolving, the fire element, the air element, and then you're, you're basically only Akasha element. And then you visualize um, Sriman Narayana standing above your head or in your heart, and you hold that visualization. And uh, again, according to the Pratyahara Dharana Dhyana Samadhi of Patanjali, Patanjali yeah. where you're doing Pratyahara, you're, you're withdrawing your mind from external contact with sense objects, you're directing your Pratyahara, and then you've got your Dharana. Dharana is holding the image yeah. in your mind. And to, as Rama said, uh, Ramanuja says, it became uh, the Taila Dharavat, 
Tailadharavat, like a um, uh, a stream of oil poured from one vessel into another, unbroken. Yeah. That is how your uh, your um, mental yeah uh, thought on the uh, form of uh, Vishnu. Yeah, and then you dissolve that form into yourself, so you merge within to, into the deity, and then again you reconstruct your body from there. So there's a whole process of wow. Bhuta Shuddhi and Bhagavad Dhyana that needs to be taught and practiced. It's not something that you are just you know DIY. Yeah, you can't, you can't read it on the internet and do it yourself. Yeah, oh, this is how I do it. So it's it's a whole process of training um, and it's arduous training and you need to do hours and hours and hours of practice of, of this uh, system uh, to get it right. So that is done prior to you actually um, in the sanctum, prior to beginning your daily archana. Yeah. And there is also a statement in in the Agama, which says, Bhagavat Sanidhyam Archakasya Tapobalat, that the Sanidhyam, the presence of the deity in the temple, is dependent entirely on the meditative capacity of the Archaka. Very interesting. I'm, that's not heard that before. Yeah, so it's this is it's and it's very significant when you uh, look at it that Bhagavat Sanidhyam. Archakasya tapo. Tapa here means meditation. Yeah, austerities, yeah. Yeah, your austerities, the, the degree, balat. So the sanidhyam is based on the, um, the tapas of the archaka. So if the archaka is not doing this daily um, uh, Bhagavad dhyanam, then he is not performing tapas. Yeah. And therefore the sanidhyam would, would not be there. Wow. But again, this in all the archakas that I've ever spoken to, this is not something that is, you know, really an. Int uh, I mean, uh, there may be uh, um, teachers, acharyas that do teach this. I mean, obviously, I haven't done a survey of uh, a quality yeah. control survey of all the archaka training colleges, but the archakas that I have met and uh, spoken to don't seem to be actually practicing this. It's all very pro forma. They arrive, open the temple clap right. their hands, start uh, and start doing their work. None of this preparatory. Um, I mean, when I was studying uh, um, uh, Pancharatra, um, my Bhagavata Radhana that I wrote by hand, remember those days there were no printed notes. Everything had to be written by hand. The morning Bhagavata Radhana would go on for about four to five hours. Every day. Every day. And that's wow, the, if wow. you're doing it properly, if you're doing it according to the Pancharatra. Uh, so you'd be waking up at four o'clock in the morning and you'd be doing your visualizations and meditations and contemplation. And that would go on for hours before you actually even started your invocation. <clears throat> wow. So but, I mean, it is as if like the entire day is taken up with the Bhagavad, uh, you know, Aradhana in some sense. Correct. And that, that would take you up to lunchtime. And then after that, you'd have your nap, your siesta. And then you start again at four o'clock and go up to nine, 10 o'clock at night. So it's a, it's a full-time involvement. Yeah. And so obviously the Bhagavad Radhana that I learned, you know, the classical, the prototype has been simplified for householders. Right. 
And so nowadays you just do a very brief Bhagavadaradana of, you know, maybe 30 minutes or something, but uh, that is very much abbreviated. <clears throat> wow. I mean, it, 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 it's, uh, I mean, when, when you look at it, like even when I look at the Dharma Shastas and now what you're explaining, it's like to follow any of these things, it just, it's your entire life. There's, there's no, there's nothing outside of that except for this. Oh, absolutely. That's why even today, there's a big problem that Archakas cannot find wives in India because people do not want to uh, marry their daughter. First of all, young girls, educated girls that are going to university don't want to marry an Archaka. Yeah. He's going to spend his entire life in the temple yeah. <clears throat> and from morning to night. And there's also all the rules and regulations that go with being an Archaka in a temple. Right. Um, so the, the, the rules and regulations are just oppressive. So, um, but is that from the, the, the Vaikanasa or Panchanta Agama, or is that something they put on themselves? No, well, it's in the Agama that priests can't do this, can't do that. You can't, you know, all your rules and regulations. And uh, because it's all about purity, maintaining your purity and your suitability, your adhikaratva to actually do the, um, uh, aradhana. Yeah. Wow, that's so, interesting. Um, but next time, when you give me some some time, I can sure. prepare you all the quotes and then I can just dazzle people with filling <laughs> up. No, that, no, no, that's fine. Because I, mean, I, I mean, I'm sure you have to go now. We'll, we'll keep this episode short, but, but I want to do a part two on this where we can discuss more of the theology of it, like, you know, the 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 Vyuhas and Yep. And and all of that, and you know, like even things of connected Lakshmi Tantra and its nature of Purusha Prakriti. I just find all that fascinating the way it, the entire evolute comes out. Excellent. Excellent. All right. Excellent. Well, everyone, thank you for uh, joining us today. It's a shorter episode, but we are going to have a few more sessions with the Acharya here and we'll get more and more topics. Thanks. <laughs> Yamuna, <laughs>